Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Morgan Stanley. Today is Wednesday, April 21st. Global COVID cases are up, Super League supporters are down, and we're focused on what the Chauvin verdict means for future police brutality cases. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin yesterday was convicted of murdering George Floyd, with a jury returning unanimous guilty verdicts on all three charges, second-degree manslaughter, third-degree murder, and the most severe charge, second-degree murder. It was, of course, a discrete case with a discrete set of facts, but it also happened within a much broader context of police officers being acquitted in past cases, as evidenced by how everyone was on tenterhooks for what seemed to be a prosecutorial slam dunk. And the question now is if what happened over the past month will impact future prosecutions, for better or for worse. We'll discuss that in a moment with Damon Hewitt, acting president of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. But first, just a quick history lesson to catch us all up. George Floyd was killed by Derek Chauvin last May 25th. Police initially said he had died due to a, quote, medical incident, but soon a bystander's video blew up that narrative. Chauvin was arrested two days later, but protesters, politicians, and pundits almost immediately asked the Hennepin County Attorney's Office for a more severe murder charge against Chauvin and charges against the three other cops at the scene, none of whom intervened. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison took the unusual step of taking over the case on June 1st and days later upped the charges against Chauvin and arrested the three other officers. The city of Minneapolis agreed eventually to pay the Floyd family a $27 million settlement, just as the Chauvin jury was being impaneled, and opening statements in the case began March 29th. The other three officers will be tried in August. And then, as the case was going on, two things happened. First, an unarmed black man named Dante Wright was killed by a cop in neighboring Brooklyn Center during a traffic stop. Second, Congresswoman Maxine Waters called for protesters to, quote, get more confrontational if Chauvin wasn't convicted. Both of these events exacerbated the anxiety that many felt uh, about what this case meant and what might happen after a verdict. And in D.C., there are efforts to pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act and an investigation by the DOJ into Minneapolis policing practices. Now we're caught up and looking ahead with Damon Hewitt in 15 seconds. But first, this. We're joined now by Damon Hewitt, acting president of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. So, Damon, let's just start with yesterday. The verdict comes out a little bit after 5 p.m. East Coast time. Your initial reaction was what? Wow. My initial reaction was mixed. It was one of relief that there was some justice done in a micro sense, or at least some accountability. It was one of dismay, to be honest because accountability should be the norm in these kinds of circumstances. This was an egregious case, but there have been many egregious cases. Uh, there was also a sense of hope. Not that one case turns the tide, but it certainly gives advocates a sense of momentum for reforms at the local, state, and even the federal level in courtrooms and beyond. But we are not looking through that with rose-colored glasses. So also a sense of anxiety, I would say, that some people will think that we're now somehow post-racial, that we've gotten over the hump and that uh, we have now arrived as a country because we have not. 
Damon, you talked about this being a particularly egregious case. Do you believe there was anything that the prosecutors did particularly well, which you think helped put them over on this case? Or was this really just preponderance of the evidence and, and namely that videotape? Well, I think what they did was, you know, similar to what an effective uh, documentarian does. You let the story tell itself. You don't overplay the hand. They did it in such a raw way by, unfortunately, community members having to relive their trauma, uh, which is ongoing, by telling their stories and by demonstrating the broad community consensus from bystanders and passers-by, to advocates, to local law enforcement themselves, who had this consensus that what happened here is not what we want to see. What happened here was, in fact, wrong. What happened here warrants some accountability. You mentioned local law enforcement. Do you believe going forward that other prosecutors and other, call them police brutality cases, are going to now make a concerted effort to try to get local police involved on their side of these cases? Well, I'm sure some may try, but that blue wall of silence is called that for a reason. It is invisible, but it is tangible. It is palpable. I, I think in many ways, this this scenario is a bit of an outlier in terms of law enforcement executives and fellow rank and file officers being willing to speak out publicly, even though we know and we've heard from many rank and file and law enforcement executives over the years about their own concerns. It's just a question of whether they break that wall of silence and speak out publicly. So other prosecutors may try, but it will be difficult. Does that potentially boomerang on other prosecutors? You know, if I'm in a jury for another case and I don't see the police chief there and I've been paying attention to the Chauvin case, somewhere in the back of my mind, it's, wait a minute, where's the police chief? Well, there, there is some psychic, you know, piece where you wonder uh, whether the bar has been raised, you know, so ridiculously high that it took a slow murder in broad daylight in front of an entire neighborhood, an entire community, that it took that to get these convictions on three different counts. But I will say, look, th there could be some some psychic problem there as far as people's willingness uh, to a judge, willingness to convict. But I hope that's not the case. How do you grade Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison on this, particularly in the timing? There was some early criticism that, that he and his office were a little bit slow, particularly bringing second-degree murder charges and then charges against the other three officers. Looking back now, almost a year later, what grade does he get here? He was in a difficult situation. I think, number one, I applaud the Attorney General for taking on the matter uh, in, in the first place. But I would say, you know, not for me to give a letter grade, but I commend the effort and the effectiveness the thoroughness of the prosecution. As far as the selection of charges, you know, I think it surprised many, his timing, but he obviously had a plan and play. And I think the state high court's ruling in the Noor case, the officer of color who was convicted uh, for killing a, a white woman, I think that made, a, made it possible for the additional charge to stick here and certainly put a lot more possibilities in play for accountability for Officer Chauvin. Speaking of other cases, the, the Dante Wright case, do you believe what happened yesterday or what's happened, say, over the past month in that courtroom, does that have any bearing ultimately on how the Dante Wright case plays out? Or are these just really always, in the end, discrete cases, discrete juries, discrete sets of facts? Well, look, the legal system is set up for there, these to be uh, judged as discrete cases, discrete juries, you know, and that plays out from the different judges, the different prosecutors, different defense counsel different jurors uh, th themselves. Uh, and so I think, you know, jury pools 
quite often or always, frankly, screened to determine whether they have been exposed to media about the case, things that would trigger bias. But here's the thing. We all are humans. We all live. This is a racialized society. Uh, we all have our experiences. And so those experiences soak in. What I will say is that the Chauvin verdict does not predetermine the verdicts in any other cases. What it may do, perhaps, is embolden various elements. It may embolden prosecutors to try to bring, uh, you know, the right types of charges. It may embolden, hopefully, community groups to fight for justice. It could certainly embolden others who want to protect police officers, no matter what harm they've done. You mentioned potentially emboldened prosecutors to seek different charges. One of the notable things about the Chauvin case was that he was tried for and found guilty of second and third degree murder, third degree murder, which is only in a couple states, as opposed to manslaughter, which is often what police officers who are charged in these cases are facing. Do you believe this will embolden prosecutors, not just in Minnesota, but in other places in similar circumstances to go for murder charges as opposed to just manslaughter? It may. It, look, it depends on the statutory options. You mentioned third degree murder being an option in different states and the statutory definition, you know, will be different in, in various states as well. What we do know is that it is I don't expect a sea change overnight. Right. I think it's exceedingly rare for any police officer to be charged with murder or to frankly be charged at all in the killing of, of a civilian. So I don't expect there to be an, an automatic sea change. But I do think under certain circumstances with the particularly egregious facts, we will see some action uh, that we haven't seen before, but not from every prosecutor. I think you'll see that from pro- prosecutors who are so-called progressive uh, when it comes to trying to protect and serve the community. We have about eight weeks until sentencing of Derek Chauvin. What, if anything, are you watching for in that hearing? Well, I think in a sentencing hearing, you always look to determine what the requests are for any uh, variation to whatever the the local guidelines are for sentencing. There are a lot of people who don't favor prison as a response to to crime or to to conflict. Um, And I think it's it's a tough conundrum for many people. It doesn't bring a loved one back. And it's a certain form of justice. It's not a pure uh, justice. But I think what we're looking for is Will the story that was told at trial, the story that we've come to understand, actually be the one that is told during the sentencing process? And will the fact of conviction actually be reflected in what the sentence looks like? I think what we're looking for with the sentencing is really more about the ultimate outcome and less about the the process itself. Will it reflect the severity of the crime? About two months after the sentencing, there will be a trial that begins for the other three officers who were on the scene when George Floyd was killed. One of the things that was interesting about the Chauvin case was that the prosecutors said that those other three officers were, quote, powerless, kind of like the bystanders were, to stop what was happening. Did the prosecutors in the Chauvin case kneecap the prosecutors who are going to try those other three officers? (laughs) That's a great question. Well, it it was a a concerted strategy uh, to go after the, I guess, the uh, the, the ringleader, so to speak, and, and, and Derek Chauvin, that doesn't mean that the other officers won't be held accountable. It's possible, given this outcome, that you may start to see some plea deals. I think that's, that's speculation on my part, but it's certainly something that has to be on the minds of their defense counsel if they're thinking clearly about the appetite for, for prosecutors and for juries to actually convict on some of these charges. 
just to follow up, if I'm a prosecutor in Minneapolis, how do I try an officer for a crime when my colleague in the same office just a couple months ago in that same courtroom said the defendant was powerless to stop what happened? It doesn't mean that uh, there's still no criminal liability that could hold. Uh, certainly, it's it's something that will come up if a, a smart defense lawyer will will argue that. But I'm pretty sure what the prosecutors had in mind here was not uh, some type of pre-acquittal, uh, so to speak, for those other officers. Uh, I'm sure that's something that they'll deal with uh, when the time comes. But it is a wrinkle uh, that certainly will have to be addressed. Attorney General Merrick Garland today announced that there was going to be a Department of Justice investigation into Minneapolis police practices. We've seen similar investigations to this announced in other areas, other police departments after similar situations. Do you believe anything comes of this or is this just kind of performative and this is what DOJ kind of has to do? Well, look, it's not performative. You know, there, there's certainly some, you know, holes in, in these processes. But one of the biggest holes is actually the fact that the oversight extends over time, which you want to see, but the political ones shift during that time. We saw probably a dozen and a half or so of these pattern and practice investigations and consent decrees that resulted during the Obama years, only to see those undermined actively during the, the prior administration or subsequent administration, the Trump administration. And so I think what matters a lot is the integrity of the oversight process throughout uh, administrations, whoever is in office succeeding President Biden. Given what you do for a living, does anything that happened in the past month change how you or your colleagues do their jobs? The actions and developments over the past month, they don't change our job inherently. What it does, though, is it shows us that there is a potential for a broader circle of human concern than some may have thought that the growing national consensus on the need for transformative change is perhaps there in a way it hadn't been before, that it's not just shifts in public discourse, that is actually perhaps now an appetite for real accountability. And it's time to leverage that through passing in the Senate, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act with any enhancements and strengtheners that, that, that are appropriate in the Senate and in reconciliation with the House of Representatives, which has already passed it. It's certainly given us a new sense of possibility, but we don't want this to be a pyrrhic victory that comes and goes with the political wins. It's really important to lay the groundwork to shift public understandings about what is possible and what we should frankly demand. Damon Hewitt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the White House, which is busy prepping for a two-day climate summit that kicks off tomorrow. Around 40 heads of state are expected to attend, albeit virtually, including China's Xi Jinping, Russia's Vladimir Putin, and Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, plus the Pope. Why it matters is this is President Biden's big attempt to reassert U.S. leadership on climate issues, which could be a hard sell after four years of antipathy or even hostility from President Trump. That's probably why Biden is expected to commit the U.S. to reducing emissions by at least 50 percent below 2005 levels by 2030, partially enabled by his infrastructure proposal, something that a 2024 successor may not be able to easily undo. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, and Alex Sugiara. If you haven't left us a review yet, please do that. Have a great national chocolate-covered cashews day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.